Welcome to Architect and Security and Governance across your AWS landing zone. If you're here, you've probably started to think about your landing zone and how do you set up your AWS environment and how do you establish your security and governance baselines. My name is Sam Almalak. I'm joined here by David Ninnis from BP. And today we'll talk to you about that journey. How do you think about your AWS environment? How do you manage that as an enterprise or a small business or a government agency? And if you stick with us by the end of it, we're going to have BP talk about their journey and where they are today and how they've progressed. And we'll give you an action plan and a checklist of things that you can follow to help you think through it. This is the third year we're running this session. And by the way, for those of you taking pictures, the slides will be available within the next few days on SlideShare. So if you want to focus on the presentation and not take pictures, it's entirely up to you. For those of you that attended last year, this is just a quick summary for those of you that haven't. We left off where Little Riding Hood had started a business and was selling grandma's cookies. And the seven dwarves started to mine gold, and they were selling it. Before long, the evil queen came along, got access to the account that they had, and they were running things in, and blocked their access. And she demanded all the apples because she wanted to poison them to try and get Snow White. But because Little Riding Hood was a good person, she decided not to cooperate and the evil queen destroyed everything that was there. It's been a year since then, and in that time, they decided to start over. So she hired Bob. Bob is an IT guy, he's a security guy, he's responsible for the servers and for the environment. And he likes doing that. He likes to set this environment, he likes to make sure systems are available, and he likes to manage it. But you've also got developers. And their job is to build the applications. And as much as Bob is willing to help and work with them, he spends a lot of his time doing things for the developers. Ideally, he wants to focus on the building the servers and getting things done. So let's bring on more Bobs. That'll help us scale the problem. And that'll help us help these developers and build those servers and get to work on that exciting stuff. But you've also got more developers. They're building more applications, trying to enable the business. And both of them are working together to help the business. One side trying to make sure we're operationally secure and we're building things the right way and enabling our customers and enabling our business to move forward. And of course, along comes the cloud. It's going to make everything easier. All those problems will go away. But we've also got more developers and more automations, and more things in place. They don't necessarily know the cloud yet. Some of the people on Bob's team are learning this. But we've got the same exact problem. We've got developers that are trying to build, and businesses that are trying to move forward, and requirements they're trying to meet. And we've got Bob's that are trying to manage it. And now they're doing things for the developers in the cloud, as well as on-prem. So they start out by saying, let's create one AWS account. Put everything in there, manage it for the development teams, and control that process. So it gives us those gray boundaries and this complicated things that over time, as we have more people, we start losing track of what's happening. Whose server is running that's got an eight extra large instance that's been up for three months, and I have no idea what's going on? 
If I take it down, will it take down my production site that's bringing in all those revenue from the cookies and from the bitcoins? And who just accidentally destroyed that production server because they were running a script? And people continue to step on one another. So Bob looks at it and decides, that's it. Let's separate the developers into their own account. People can experiment and learn and build these things and move forward and put production and have that owned by the operations side. And over time, the same problem starts to happen because I still can't tra track the resources of the spend. I don't know what business unit, what application is running the things that I'm doing. The isolation, still not doing very well. Granted, I've got development separate from the production systems. And people are still stepping on one another. And now, not only does Bob have to manage IAM and VPCs in the production account, he also has to manage it in the development account. The problem is we're thinking from an on-premises posture and trying to operate that to the cloud. And if you're here, I'm assuming most of you have heard of this cloud thing. It seems to be making waves somewhere. And it's fundamentally different. Some concepts are still the same. But if we're starting to inherit those same ideas from the data center days, we start running into scaling problems. And it's not that the operations or security are doing this out of malice or anything. It is we have legal and business and HR requirements that we need to meet. And as a result, we put processes and things in place to protect our companies, to protect our data, and protect our environment. And therefore, we don't trust developers, developers with full access. And I promise you that developers want to do work. And to be clear, this isn't developers against operations. This isn't developers against security. It's how do we work together to help move the business forward to achieve our goals and our outcomes? And I'm sure some of you have heard of DevOps, and it is a great idea. And as we all know, it will fix everything the moment you decide, I'm going to do DevOps. But it doesn't work if ops is in the way. And it also doesn't work if the development teams are not working closely with the operations team to think through how do we build and establish this. What if we think this slightly differently? What if, we need what if we provide access to AWS services without barriers? Let people have the ability to fail without collateral damage. S reduce that blast radius and make it so that if something goes wrong, it's limited, it's isolated, and I'm OK. And we take our operations team and turn them into cloud architects. And part of the role is to establish the guardrails and governance and things that we need, but at the same time, help train the development teams on how to move forward and think about the best practices and approaches. And as a result, everyone can help influence that digital transformation, that business journey, those things that we're trying to build out and bring us money. Because the reality is, short of you being in a nonprofit and even then you've got goals, every business is, in theory, somewhere wants to make some money. What are those customer goals? How do we help influence those outcomes and move faster and do it? And then I can also track things. I know exactly what product, what business, what things were launched. And finally, start thinking about optimizing that code for the cloud. How do I make sure that what I built and what I'm doing runs the right way and takes advantage of the capabilities that I have that I traditionally didn't have in the data center? Things like auto-scaling, things like being able to launch instances on demand. So let's start with this model. What if we take our developers, whether it's one, five, a hundred, 
or anybody within your organization that has to do with technology. They each get their own AWS account. With full access, they can do whatever they want, but it's isolated. For those of you that are in operations or security in the room, I know this sounds scary. And it is not an easy thing to do. But when you start thinking about it, it's isolated. They have no access. And if we treat it as a company resource by HR policy, with a spending limit, $50 to $100 a month, and it's a place for people to learn and innovate and understand this, then we start building team accounts. The teams can go in and build together on a new initiative or a POC that we're trying to build. And our software development lifecycle accounts, our SDLC accounts, production, staging, development. And then we put a purple line. Everything above the purple line is owned by operations. Everything below it is owned by the development teams and the people that are working on building that application. And then we start building out core shared services. And Bob now is responsible for everything on the red line, above the purple line, and the development teams and the people that are working are responsible for below. There's, of course, guardrails and governance and things in place, but they get to innovate, they get to play, they get to learn. So we start with the shared accounts. Maybe I have a shared services account. That's where I put things like my AD or LDAP for those of you that have things against AD. Log archive to hold my security logs. My network account for my direct connect or network related services. Security to help me manage the environment. And now that Bob is managing these things and he's managing the shared accounts and building these team shared services, well now, that's where all the critical things that he's concerned about are. And if there's no other teams in there, what if we take that purple line and just move it off to the left? So the operations and that central team or the cloud center of excellence, however you decide to call it within your organization, is responsible for the maintenance and deployment of applications and things there. And I don't have to worry about teams going in and messing that stuff up because they're owned by that team. And then we take those accounts that we had and we start tiering them, having that staging stage, production, and make those purple lines become vertical. So each team is responsible for the things that they own up the entire stack. There is still guardrails and governance happening from a, an operations and security. This is not a free-for-all. The only accounts that come close to being free-for-all are the development sandboxes. Those are the ones with the spending limit that are a company resource and that are there. And the more you start thinking about it, the risk profile there becomes a little bit less because they could just as easily set up their own account with their personal email and immediately copy all the data they want to leak out. So the risk profile is not as bad as it might sound. I know there's people in this room that are shaking their heads violently, and this sounds crazy. It's OK. We'll work with you. But you've got different stages. And, and, and the fact is, as we start enabling people to innovate and build new things, to learn it. And you've got the shared services. And again, do them by tiers, and you start building that approach. We have one customer that just decided, well, my development teams are there. I've decided I'm going to go with AWS. I want them to learn. So they offered it as a fringe benefit. Every single person, you want an AWS account, we are going to pay your bill up to $50 a month. Your personal blog site, go put it up there. You want to set up a gaming server, go put it up there. We'll pay the bill. What that meant is the development teams got to learn at home, got to play around and do things on their own time, and the company is doing it. And it becomes a fringe benefit. 
Now, for those of you that don't realize, hopefully by now you all know what an EWS account is. It is the highest level of isolation that we have. Whether I created or you created or we're in the same company or we're living in the same households, they are isolated. And the amount of controls and protections that we have within AWS around that is phenomenal. I've personally tried to help customers get access to accounts for people that have left the organization, and it is a tough process, simply because we value your security and privacy. So they are extremely isolated. From an API limits perspective, from a security perspective, from a billing separation. So the more I can scale that out, the more I can understand and know the visibility. And oftentimes, one account is not enough for a lot of the reasons we talked about. I have multiple teams. I need a, a level of isolation that it's pretty hard to achieve in a single account. I might have different security and compliance rules. Maybe it's the production side. Maybe it's the PCI workload that I'm hosting or some PII information. Different businesses have different business processes. Different groups within a single company have different processes. And finally, billing. I can attribute my costs down to a specific business initiative and a specific project so I can know exactly how much something costs, and I can attribute it to my revenue lines and see what that looks like. And to achieve all of that, we need a certain set of goals. To achieve that many accounts, I need to be automated. Because the reality is it doesn't matter how many bobs I start hiring, at some point I need to bring in some automation to be able to scale this out and make it as self-service as we can so that Bob is not in the way. If anything, Bob becomes that enabler, that glue that helps bring everything together. How do we help the rest of the business and the development teams do it? And think of it in terms of guardrails and not blockers. Oftentimes, security organizations or ops or even legal and HR, the answer is no. How do we think about it? How do we start thinking through this so we enable the business innovation for our companies? So thinking about guardrails, trusting but verifying, and being able to audit that environment, knowing exactly what's running in it, knowing who did what, and understanding what's happening, and setting alarms and things based on it. And most importantly, being flexible. If I achieve all those other fives, I'll have the ability to be flexible. Because then I can launch things. I can decide that some new accounts need to be created. But this sets us up on the path to move forward. Before we start with any single account, there's a number of baseline considerations that we have to do. I need to lock my root credentials. I need to enable CloudTrail so I know what's happening within that account and store it somewhere secure and safe. Enable guard duty so I know for security findings. Federate my identity into those accounts. Not I am users, but you've got a directory somewhere within your environment, whether it's AD or LDAP. I can federate that into the AWS environment. Your joiners and leavers process, gets inherited that way. Think about your enterprise roles, who's developers, architects, what is it that they're trying to achieve? Cross-account roles for security so they can audit and see what's happening within the environment. And think about the actions and the guardrails that we're trying to build and establish. So at a high level, we've talked already about the sandbox, but we're going to set up this entire environment to help us enable this. So we've got an organization's master all the way up top. We've got a log archive to maintain our security logs our security, our shared services, our network account, our billing tooling, our sandbox environment, our SDLC accounts for deployment, QA, production, however we set it up. And of course, other for that flexibility. PCI, for example. Being able to say the scope of this audit is just this account makes it much simpler. 
So we start with organization's master account. This is the root of the tree, or the top of the hierarchy that you have. It's not connected to our data centers. We can host things like our service control policies. It's where our consolidated bills go, so we have that full visibility, which of course enables you to think of things like volume discounts. And there's almost no resources running in this. This is one of the most critical accounts to your organization. It should be owned by somebody who's responsible for the security of your organization. And it's extremely limited access. And that organization's role that gets created to help enable what's happening should be extremely restricted. I can use service control policies to do things like deny the ability to stop CloudTrail from logging. Because the last thing you want is a bad actor getting into that account, turns off CloudTrail, does whatever they want to do, and you have no clue what happened. I've even had customers use CloudTrail logs to identify a database instance that's been running for a year and a half, and they had no idea who owned it. And the way to find it was to go into the CloudTrail logs to know exactly who launched it so they can reach out to them and figure it out. I can say, I don't want to attach an internet gateway. Prevent that from, me from happening. So perhaps for some applications or some production apps that are internal only, I don't want that to happen. And I can control that as a service control policy overriding the root accounts or anything that they do. From there, we've got our core accounts. We talked about developer accounts before. Well, before we do that, we've got these foundational accounts that form those building blocks. And they're once per organization. These are the things that help the rest of the organization operate. And again, they're owned by the people responsible for that particular area. And each of them, even though they appear as, appear as a single box here, they have their own development life cycle. They'll look very much like a team account, where we've got the different stages. But they are the building blocks. So we start with the log archive, those security logs. We've got a version Amazon S3 bucket, restricted access, MFA delete, versioning enabled. This way, if something goes wrong, I've still got all the files there. If somebody tries to delete it, they need to have an MFA token. And more importantly, it's sitting in its own separate account that is the single source of truth. If somebody tries to log into that account, there should be alarms happening. And short of tooling that does that, nothing else should be running in that account. We can provide read-only access to the logs as needed, but that's our single point of truth. From there, we move on to the security account. Owned by the security organization, it will send its security logs over to the log archive account. It might have connectivity to your data center, depending on whether your security tooling is in the data center or you're doing it in the cloud. Some customers choose to do it in the cloud because they can scale up in the cloud to handle what's happening. Your guard duty master, You've got a cross-account read-write roles. The read, the read one is to be able to audit and know what's happening. The write is to potentially affect changes. But it's automated tooling. This is not the place to be able to log into every single account and go change it as humans. That introduces, that increases the chance if something goes wrong. There should be a federation solution that helps provide that capability. But it can serve as a break glass type scenario if everything else does not work or is not available. But it's largely for automated tooling and things that need to happen. And again, extremely limited access. In this entire framework, it's the people who own it, what are the teams, and what are their areas of responsibility, and how do we diversify what they're doing. From there, we start thinking about things like our shared services. And same thing as before, our security logs go to the log archive. It's absolutely connected to our data center because it'll probably need things like directory, connected to every other account that we have because they'll likely have a dependency on it. So things like our DNS, our LDAP, our Active Directory, our shared services VPCs, our deployment tools possibly, 
AMIs, pipelines? Our scanning infrastructure, are there inactive instances? Are there snapshots that have been there for three years that nobody is looking at? Monitoring, and again, owned by the central group that manages this. So maybe it's owned by Bob's organization. And then finally on the core account, our network account. Again, your network team is likely different from your centralized team, and they have a fundamental understanding of how your network operates and certain rules and governance. So your Direct Connect can be hosted there, for example. And your networking services. And this is not connected to your data center because it's Direct Connect can be hosted and it can put virtual interfaces out to different places. But it provides that place. And again, in this framework, it's the teams that are responsible. I found customers that took shared services, separated it out into multiple accounts as well. Because they decided deployment tooling is going to go in one. Their golden AMI publication is going to go in another. But it becomes a function of how you build this out. Now that we've gotten the building blocks, we go into the developers. Those sandboxes we talked about, they have dependencies there. So they need to send their security logs there as well. That cross-account role to security gets created. So if you do need to do something, they're there. It's an innovation space, fixed spending limit. Whether it's $50, a million dollars, you decide how, you, how much you want to give your developers to do. Or anybody, ultimately, within their organization, whether it's architects, developers, operations, that's a place to learn. And it's autonomous, and it's experimentation. And it is absolutely disconnected from everything else. And it is treated as a company resource. From there, we start looking at our teams. And it's thinking about that level of needed isolation. Who are the teams? What do they provide? What do they do? And what aspects are they responsible for? And match your development life cycle. And try and think as small as you can. So I start with developing my development stage. Again, same thing as before. We send our security logs to Log Archive. Might be connected to our data center, to a development network if we have it there. Definitely connected to our shared services, because it may have dependencies on directory services and other things there. And it's a place to develop, try things out, collaborate. It's just a stage of our development life cycle. And even though I only show three of them here, ultimately, it is a function of what you do. If you've got alpha, beta, gamma, delta, and however many stages, you create an account for that stage. For pre-production, same thing. Security logs go, connected to shared services, connected to our pre-production network and our data center, and it's production-like. It is our staging environment, testing environment, automated deployment. And like we described before, those vertical lines, it's owned by the teams. They are responsible and accountable for it with an operations and security teams that are defining guardrails in place to help them achieve that. And for the developers in the room, this is not permission to go in and do everything that you can and copy all the data immediately. This is an ability for us to cooperate and work together to try and build this. Because the fact is the cloud makes it so much easier to launch things all over the place. And it is, as one of my coworkers like to say, S3 has got amazing replication. Or our databases, like RDS, has got great replication from one availability zone to the other. And it will very efficiently replicate your drop all from every single table from one availability zone to the other. So we need to start thinking about those guardrails and protections in place. And how do we do things in an intelligent way? From there, we go into our production account. And again, similar to before, it's a stage of our development, connected to our data center, security logs go across. And again, 
It's a production application. Hopefully, you're promoting that from a pre-prod. Extremely limited access. And each one of these stages becomes less and less access as we move forward. Over time, things will grow. Shared services will grow. And you'll identify things that make sense as a common set of tooling. And you'll think of those as team shared services. And same thing, connected to the appropriate places, connected to all of other accounts that depend on it, and it grows organically. When you start out, this one is not going to be relevant. But eventually, it'll be obvious what things become common services and core things. And they might end up looking like their own team thing across the board. So common tooling, maybe a data lake that you're doing. So your innovation pipeline would look something like this. I've got developer accounts. I can go from there to a POC account to experiment and try something as a team, and then go into the development pre-prod and prod. Or for some customers, just go right to dev. And that definition varies depending on whether it's an approved initiative or it's something we're trying out. And if I've got special things and exceptions, whether it's a regulatory compliance program, it's far easier to say an auditor, the scope of it is this particular account. So at the end, we end up having something like this. And then from there, we start thinking about some of the teams that you'll likely want to start. My billing tools, things for analyzing my, um, my, my bills, my reporting, my RIs, usage metrics, being able to identify ways to save money. If you're subject to an internal audit or an auditing program in general, you might have an internal audit organization. Again, they're a team. They get read-only access to the logs they need, build what they want, and go from there. And if you're interested in that topic, there's ENT315 that dives a lot deeper into that area. It's actually running right now, and there's another one running tomorrow. And then if we've got an amazing new product or a service we're thinking about launching, same thing. Match the development lifecycle and try and think small. I'll turn it over to David from BP to talk about their journey and how they've gone through this. Thanks, Sam. So yeah, I mean, this track was something I took a lot away from, from last year's reInvent. Um, and it was great to have the opportunity to come here and share a little bit about uh, our experiences over the last couple of years. Um, there's a lot of learning gone into it, and every year uh, we develop you know, more best practice and so on. Um, so a quick introduction to uh, BP. <laughs> he says. The big green button. That big green button, look at that, sorry. BP. Um, so most of you are probably familiar with it in one shape or form. Um, if you think about it from the point of view of uh, you know, an incredibly varied set of both business activities and therefore IT requirements, we work in the desert, in the deep sea, we have refineries, retail sites, rigs, um, and all of those things work together to deliver a huge number of different products and services around the world whether it's energy for heat and light or fuel for transport, a lot of the raw materials for clothing, packaging, and so on. Operating in over 70 countries, around 74,000 people, uh, plus a similar number of third parties. Uh, and those different businesses, whether it's data acquisition from seismic surveys, which generate petabytes of information, or the huge array of uh, IoT sensors out there, you know, monitoring wind farms or pressure and temperature in a refinery, drove us into public cloud as a way of uh, evolving the services that we can offer back to our business. And that required, obviously, that we develop 
landing zone capability. Quick plug for some colleagues who ran a, a session yesterday. You'll find it on YouTube if you're interested. OIG 301 goes into a lot of detail around how we evolved our corporate network to adapt to the world of cloud. So our journey, while I was preparing for this session, I went back and had a look at you know, just how long we'd been going. Uh, and I found uh, back in 2011, I'd started work uh, on some ad hoc IaaS services as part of our hosting portfolio. Um, shortly after that, in 2012, we moved our corporate web presence there because it's a classic you know, auto-scaling, elastic type of environment. And we went on and many more tactical projects. By 2013, we were starting to think very seriously about how we govern the environment. And in practice, back in 2013 and into 2014, Cloud governance meant turning up to the cloud governance board, where you could come and share the thing that you wanted to do with a variety of stakeholders from legal and tax and finance and security and so on. Uh, and assuming all of those stakeholders agreed, then you could use cloud for your use case. So we kept going and didn't put everybody off. And in 2015, we decided public cloud was the answer for you know, most of our future IT requirements. We skipped private cloud uh, and in 2016 went and built our first corporate landing zone. Um, we didn't know it as landing zone back then and there were fewer best practices than there are now. Um, and I'll talk a little bit now about how we've evolved from that in 2016 to our self-service landing zone solution uh, today. If I look back at 2016, there are a lot of similarities to what Sam has already described. You'll see that we had a master payer account so we could do our consolidated billing, no surprises there, centralized our security logs. We spent a lot of time with the account solution architect of the day, with uh, Dave Walker as a security specialist, uh, and we went through you know, the types of concern that people had about building out in public cloud. We stuck our directory services into that shared services account, some of our centralized tooling so we could keep an eye on the environment, central billing tools. We installed Direct Connect, and we did indeed give it to the network team to manage. Uh, and then development, pre-prod and prod for hosting workloads. Uh, and finally, a database account, which was uh, used as a shared services environment for data effectively. Um, the difference, in many ways, from what Sam described and, and where we were in 2016 is that that was it. That was what we deployed into a region, and we multi-tenanted it. Um, so if you turned up and you said, I want a dev workload, we'd say, great, here you are. Assume this role, and that role would allow you to interact with particular resources um, that were tagged. So you could assume role 1234, and if there was a resource with a tag 1234, then great. Um, if you've worked with uh, Amazon resources, particularly around tagging for security and resource level permissions, you'll know that doesn't give you much to play with. Um, EC2, fantastic, S3, EBS, uh, and then certainly in 2016, not that much. Uh, so you might wonder why would we have started there? Well, in practice, we were starting to think about how do we move applications out of our data centers? Uh, and one of the big drivers there was, uh, you know, vast majority, in some areas of the business, 90% or more of the workloads were commercial off-the-shelf software, 
running on virtual machines or physical machines on premises. So EC2 is by far and away the largest requirement at that point in time. Um, and so that's where we started. Some users came, uh, and of course, some of them were very happy. It's kind of, we've got cloud, it's self-service. Uh, there's a degree of governance built into the platform, so when you come and use that shared services environment, you don't have to worry about lots of the security baseline because we've built that into the platform. Because of the tag-based security and the resource level permissions, you only get to touch your resources, so nobody's treading on each other's toes. And we were happy it did I as well. Um, but those users were followed by some other ones who were perhaps a little less excited about what we'd given them. Some of them didn't quite recognize the freedom that they had in their own accounts when they were playing around outside of the corporate environment. And they wanted more access to services, all the services that might have been available. And so very quickly, we got into a place where we had to provide more accounts. You know, the types of things that uh, Sam talked about for team shared services, we had people who wanted to build a data lake or wanted to build a container platform for others. Um, and we couldn't manage that in that consolidated landing zone. So in practice, what we had to do was create these extra accounts. It created overhead for our teams because they didn't fit the original template and so on. It created some overheads in some areas with inline policy management and wrapping things in cloud formation to try and extend our boundary. And to some degree, we were trying to break out of our own uh, landing zone to be more uh, capable of meeting business users' needs. So we thought then about you know, how do we iterate this uh, I'm going to digress slightly in the sense of a um, couple of points that I think are really important. Um, many of you, I'm sure, will recognize uh, the 18th century French philosopher Voltaire. If you've never come across him, Wikipedia is your friend. But uh, one of the things he left us with was, the best is the enemy of the good. We'd put a lot of energy into coming up with something that we thought was uh, you know, the best way of dealing with the solution. Uh, that was needed. Um, in practice, I think if we'd managed to get something together that was good enough uh, and got that out to our users and started getting feedback and, and then iterating more quickly, uh, we'd have got there um, a lot quicker perhaps than we have. Um, but always remember, you know, in your business context, something that is good enough is often going to be more valuable if you can deliver that today than something that might be aiming for perfect but it's going to take you months of delivery effort. The other one was a chap called John Boyd. Um, he was a military strategist in the US Air Force um, in the 50s or thereabouts. Um, and he developed something called the OODA loop. And that basically talks about observe, orient, decide, and act. And you could argue it's very similar to the way we iterate software development uh, by using agile approaches. Um, but basically, if you think in this context, you need to understand in your environment, by observing, uh, how people are consuming Amazon services. Um, and having figured that out, you know, orient yourself around how you're going to iterate to improve that experience. Make some decisions. What are we going to do next? Is there a you know, user experience gap? Is there a security gap? Uh, take the action and then go around the loop again. And just keep doing that. Because it's the only way that you can meet the user requirements in a, in a sort of rapid time frame. Some of the things that have really helped us in the last couple of years um, that we just obviously didn't have. Organizations 
is one of the biggest ones that, that Sam's mentioned already. If you think about it, it only became available in February 2017, um, and it's the service, effectively, that makes other services multi-account capable. Um, Sam's already alluded to being able to assign service control policies through organizations, um, but just if you just think about the overhead that it took away, I can create an account very simply just by providing some metadata. I can move that account into an OU that I've already decided and defined service control policies for is fit for a particular use case. And compared with the old model, that makes things uh, way easier to create, if not delete, uh, accounts in your environment. Uh, something else that uh, came out earlier this year in the summer, um, permissions boundaries in IAM. Um, so the ability not just to create a permissions policy, but also to attach a permissions boundary policy. So you can limit the amount of uh, sort of actions that your team members can take. Um, I mean, a simple example, if you've attached a permissions policy, or uh, permissions boundary rather, that prevents any VPC peering, then even if somebody's got uh, policy coming in from elsewhere that allows them all actions on EC2, that's going to restrict it. So you can more confidently delegate people access to manage the resources um, and remove some of that perhaps central overhead that we might experience. Something that really helped us this year uh, was Amazon releasing their landing zone solution. Um, it's a great example. Amazon listens to the feedback that we give. We've been complaining for as long as I can remember about the amount of heavy lifting that running a multi-account uh, environment took and the amount of kind of engineering effort that us and many other companies have had to undertake. So our account solution architect at the time, uh, back in March, said, spotted this thing internally, uh, and we went and had a look at it, and it comes with you know, a series of baked-in uh, security best practices, you've got controls automated, you've got the account vending machine that leverages organizations, uh, and the end-to-end -end process then being uh, automated with guardrail deployment. And that was something that made uh, uh, our journey a lot easier. Having looked at it, we figured, well, why would we bother trying to build this capability if we can use it out of the box? So where did we get to? We took the core of that landing zone solution. Um, it's designed as a framework, it's not a service, uh, and we were able to then uh, feed it with metadata that we'd store separately in a, an Amazon DynamoDB table at request time. We were able to extend that landing zone solution uh, using custom cloud formation resources uh, in, in the product so that we could use stuff that we already had. There's one thing to always remember, uh, in most cases, you've built stuff that works. And if there's no reason to replace it immediately, then why not reuse it? So where we had code that already dealt with things like role and policy deployment, we had code that dealt with deploying a VPC to a particular template, we could just use the landing zone to invoke that rather than having to start from scratch. We also, having been on this journey for a little while, had existing accounts. So in practice, if you've already got a log bucket somewhere, you've probably built operational processes around ingesting the logs and scanning for events and that kind of thing. So why would you want to replace it? So we were able to use the solution alongside what we already had in place. And where that takes us to in practice is this, which looks a bit more like what Sam described. 
Um, we have some separate language, you know, we, internally we call this hub and spoke, the hub accounts are the accounts that we store all of the shared central resources in, and the spokes are the places that we put workloads. We have organizations at the top, rather than just the simple master payer, so you can actually take advantage of not just the automation there, but the centralized controls of SCPs and so on. That log archive account we've reused, the security account now is the place where our security team is able to deploy their tooling. It's where the guard duty master lives and so on. Um, and it means we've been able to let that team of people as part of our overall platform organization always loose on securing our environment with us. Those shared services still exist and they're a core key for providing you know, the shared directory. Some of our teams now run their tooling in there for uh, CICD, for example. Um, many others then able to take advantage of them. Some of them have been quite entrepreneurial, setting up a shared service for other teams to benefit from. Same network account providing direct connect. The developer sandbox, of course, being new. Um, that's available in our environment. We give you accounts for 90 days, effectively. So as long as you've automated uh, or at least stored your code in a uh, separate repository, you can always redeploy after 90 days, but it's intended to give people uh, more of a, you know, I'm going to do a POC, and it has a time limit to it to encourage you to actually finish it. And then you can come to the environment, if you need your own accounts through the SDLC lifecycle, you'll be able to host those in dev, pre-prod, prod, whatever's appropriate for the service that you're running. The old data lake accounts and so on, come into the team shared services space, and then we still have databases as a service where that's appropriate. I wanted to have a quick look at the end-to-end -end request workflow, not because I want you to read all the little tiny words, but more because if you think about how your users consume these services, there are a wide range of things that happen outside of AWS. Um, and the different colors on here represent different teams, potentially, or different services that are part of our end-to-end -end, uh, request workflow. So when you have a look at uh, the simple-to-read version, you can just turn up. Anybody who has an account on our corporate network can turn up and request an AWS account. There's a very simple form they fill in in our request portal. Uh, mostly, obviously, we're interested in how you're going to pay for it and who's going to need access to it. Um, but once we've got that metadata, we can pass that over to the DynamoDB I mentioned, and then it triggers the landing zone solution to create the new account. As it works through that process, the landing zone solution triggers our code so that we add to the account, not just a Know, vanilla environment, but the template for the VPC that you need, the particular roles that are appropriate for that account. Once we have the account number, it just gets fed back into the request portal, and that then triggers other activity to create some roles, role groups in Active Directory. So when you come to sign in, you can assume those roles in AWS. That then gets synced up into Azure Active Directory, which is our source of, uh, sort of identity for single sign-on, and we tell you it's done. In a perfect world, that's about a 25-minute, 30-minute end-to-end process. In real life, because of things like replication windows, uh, depending on when you submit it, it might take three or four hours. Um, but what that's given us, if you think back to you know, creating an account 
and having to have all those handoffs between the different teams. Some of those teams used to work under tickets and things like that. It could take you a couple of weeks or more to have an account provisioned, and even then, uh, because it's not an automated process, the odds of that coming out exactly as we expected aren't always great. So now we have an end-to-end -end automated process with a standardized way of templating accounts, and we're not so scared of having many of them. When I think about some of the security and governance outcomes that's given us, um, if you think about IAM, um, identities are always mastered in our corporate directory. So we already have all of the processes to manage you, you know, join a mover, lever type processes through your journey at BP. And that means you can turn up, we can authenticate you, we know that you're a valid user, we can apply multi-factor authentication, whether you're coming in through the console or the API or the CLI as appropriate. And that's an incredibly strong control to have from a security point of view. With CloudTrail, we're able to protect all of those environments so that we know we've got the central logging coming in. We know that you can't turn it off. Uh, and that just feeds straight back up into the log processing that we already have. Config's been particularly useful as well. As we're rolling out the template for the account, we'll put some base config rules in there. And our security team with their cross-account access also have the ability to deploy additional config rules if that's appropriate or the baseline's changed in the, since the master was deployed. Systems Manager, if you've got architectures that are based on EC2, for example, is a very powerful tool when it comes to understanding your inventory, the patch status, and managing that, for example. We also provide financial governance, so if you turn up to our environment, your cloud environment is effectively covered by a dashboard scoped to you. So you know what's going on in your environment, you know whether it's being covered by the RIs that we offer centrally, you know whether you're turning your non-prod environments off and so on, and you can see the effect on your bill whether you are or not. And then finally, uh, given that a lot of our teams are still running commercial off-the-shelf software on uh, IaaS effectively, um, we offer workspaces. So if you do need interactive access, if you haven't quite got to the point where you can deploy everything automatically, then you can use a workspace as a bastion to get into your account and interact with those resources securely. Something I also wanted to highlight, because this was something we put together in 2016 and it was a good example of reuse, that's the end-to-end -end of our event handling engine effectively. We figured we may as well reuse it, because although in practice you could probably start again today and you could use some of the native Amazon services that have come along since, it still does the job for us. We gather the data centrally courtesy of CloudTrail. We can then ingest that and index it and start to think about what are the types of event that we might be concerned about if we saw those in our environment. We can call those out and decide, you know, based on what you've done, that we might need to take some action. And fundamentally, at that point, we can choose to just tell you. So, you know, dear account owner, we've spotted this thing's happened in your account. You might want to go and look at that. If it was something more serious, like you've had a bucket with a public policy, obviously less of a problem these days, thanks to the controls that are going into the Amazon platform. But we could then remediate that policy for you and stop it being public. And maybe if it was something that we were particularly unhappy about, like you put a NAT gateway on an account that shouldn't be uh, connected outside the corporate network, we'll take the resource away again for you. 
because we're good like that. But I think, in closing, I'd probably leave you with five things. Um, we've got this far. It's taken quite a long time. Uh, and we've learned a lot uh, as we've iterated down our journey. Um, it's taken our unique business context, our requirements, to, to get us to the place where we've got this particular landing zone. There are a lot of common components. There are a lot of things that are also unique to us. It's not perfect. It probably never will be. Um, but it's something that's been good enough in our environment. We're trying to transition away from a world in which an account is a thing. Yeah? I shouldn't have to worry about how many accounts we've got. I should be happy because of all the automation and inspection and so on that we can have as many accounts as we want that are appropriate for delivering our business outcomes. If every developer wants one, that's great. If business people want one, they can have an account. Um, I should just be able to do that. Um, I think, I mean, that pets versus cattle is probably the analogy. In most architectures, accounts have long been pets because you have to take conscious choices, how you stand them up, how you maintain them. Uh, and that just tends to get in the way. One of our success measures now is whether we are in the way. Um, if I have people coming to talk to me about, can I do X, Y, Z? Uh, generally, it means, from my point of view, we've got something wrong. Um, we should be able to offer self-service access to AWS, uh, and that means that uh, some of the choices that we've made along the way, uh, we have to go back and revisit. Classic example, when we initially released our um, landing zone solution based on the version that came out in the summer, um, we actually chose, you know, we sat down and we went through all the Amazon services and we said, not so sure about these, here are a few that maybe we're not going to let the developers have after all. And of course, all that does is drives people to try and work around you. Uh, they might go off and spin up their own accounts. They might then uh, take far more risk because they're not using any managed identities. I can't see their logging or anything like that. Um, and one of my colleagues came back and challenged us around, you know, why, why have we done that? Because you can look at it and say, well, there's a very good reason for disabling this particular service because something bad might happen. But if it's in a sandbox environment and the intent is for people to learn, that control probably isn't going to actually do you any good at all. So always challenge yourself, you know, is this control in place for the right reason? Uh, or am I, in fact, preventing business value? We have to keep listening to our users. You know, we sit down with a bunch of representatives. Obviously, we can't sit down with all of them. Uh, every month, um, we tell them what's on our development roadmap. They tell us what they're interested in. And we have a shared prioritization so that we can work on our development goals. We don't always keep them happy, because prioritization means somebody doesn't get to the top of the list. Um, but that's back to the, the more we can get out of the way, the more we can give them self-service access, the happier that they'll be, happier that we'll be, because we can focus on higher value stuff. Um, and then finally, AWS itself will keep evolving. You know, the reInvent's always a bit of a roller coaster in terms of, is my hard work going to be wiped out by some new service that's just been released? Uh, but um, you, you kind of take the rough with the smooth on that one, I think, in terms of you will always have a requirement to deliver something for your business, and you can't always wait. It's hard to get insight into what is coming. So kind of come up with a solution that's good enough for you in your context, and then just keep iterating. So I will hand back to Sam just to uh, close out. Thank you.
So that's two days in a row. When he finishes, he gets a clap. When I finish, I don't. <laughs> no, it's okay. No, no, no. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> so let's quickly summarize. I know it's almost 5 p.m. Let's get you out of here at least two minutes early. That's my goal. Um, we talked about this, the multi-account approach, and what do we think through it. So we start with organization's master. That's the root above that manages everything underneath it. Our log archive for our security logs. Our security account for the security tool. Excuse me, tools, config rules, things that we have in place. Our shared services, common tooling. That's the stuff that Bob owns. That's the stuff that the teams that are responsible for it own. Our network to host our direct connect. Some networking services. For our developers, there's sandbox environment for anybody, actually, that needs to start accessing and learn how to use this environment. There's our dev sandboxes. And I promise you, for the most part, developers are going to try and be responsible. And at the same time, this is not a competition. This is not an us versus them. It's how do we work together to get to that business outcome. Match our development lifecycle with things like a development account, our pre-proud and prod. And as we said earlier, match that to what you currently use. Different teams may have different things. You might have different guardrails for each one of those. And then our team shirts shared services. This is the stuff that grows organically. This is the third year we ran, we've run this talk. And I wanted to make sure that at least there's a few new concepts for those that attended this in the past and have seen it. So one of the areas we started to think about is, what do you do when you start doing big changes that affect your entire landing zone? That environment you built out, all those core accounts. Well, the reality is, you don't want to just go roll that in your production. So one of the best practices is, we want to have a test landing zone. It's another landing zone that's a smaller version of the big one, where I have changes that affect the rules, the accounts, the way things are being deployed. I can set that up in parallel to test those changes. And it's going to look very similar to the primary one that I have. But it gives us that ability to test and work through it. The other one I wanted to make sure you start thinking about is forensics. If something does go wrong, or there's a compromise, how do we analyze that and know what's happening? Well, we want an isolated area to do this. We want it to be nearly invisible, which means one-way trust, forensics being able to view the things within the environment, but not the other way around. And you achieve that through cross-account roles and other ways to make sure that that is in place. And we want it to be nearly invisible. And again, that's a smaller version of a landing zone with a twist with a few different controls in there to try and make sure that that happens. And that's an area we're working guidance around. I did promise you earlier in the talk that I'm going to give you an action list and a way for you to start thinking about this and defining how to move next steps. So thinking about your tagging strategy. How am I going to automate this, create these accounts, start going to develop our sandboxes. And while that's happening, work on the shared accounts and get some of the things, additional tooling or the team accounts. An action plan for different, one, different accounts. We go as far as going a little bit overboard here, but we want to make sure everything is there. We have backfill steps. So if you wanted to have full audit of everything happening from the moment you created the organization's master, you can start turning those logs. And once you create the log archive, transfer things over for that full visibility. There's a bunch of things that reference a common checklist. Here it is. Different things to start thinking about. 
David alluded to the AWS Landing Zone solution. It's something that we released earlier this year, and I think it was about a week ago we released another iteration of it that provides more extensibility. They modified the older version of it. One of the hardest things about my job is keeping up on, with everything that we keep releasing. So the extensibility things would have made their life a little bit easier. I am sorry, David, but it's here, and it makes it a bit easier to do that. And it helps build that environment for you. By all means, this is not the only way to do it, but it's a way that we have available for you. And we're listening to our customers. How do we help them do this? This is the third year we're doing this talk, and it's the first year we've got this out there to help customers do it. So it creates that basic structure, the log archive, the security account, the shared services, make sure everything is set up, the organization's master, ensures that the security logs, CloudTrail is going to the log archive account. And most importantly, it has an account vending machine. So those APIs from organizations that David alluded to, it has a wrapper around them. So that when you create a new account using the account vending machine, it will create that cross-account security role that we spoke about. It will make sure that the cloud trail logs are going to the log archive account. So it sets that basic plumbing in place to help you get started. It will not do everything, but it gets us a part of the way there. And it helps you move forward. Now you can focus on making additional value-add decisions around what you want to build. By all means, you can build this all from scratch yourself. But this might make it a little bit easier. So back to those next steps that we just spoke about. By the way, there's a whole session and a chalk talk around just the landing zone. Here's some of the stuff that's crossed out from what we saw before that the landing zone solution starts to take care of. So it creates those three accounts. Gives you the account vending machine so you can use it to start creating those developer sandboxes or your team accounts. We crossed out a number of things from this list as well, like enabling the cloud trail to go to those accounts and making sure that the bucket is there. On our common checklist, a number of things get crossed out. And to give you a little bit of the bigger view here, so far we've spoken about this idea of a landing zone and the different pieces and the accounts that we have. But on top of that, we need to start thinking about the account metadata. Who's the owner of each account, the function? What are the policies that I want enforced or guard rails that are there? What stage of the development life cycle is it? The cost center and so on. So policies are made out of guardrails, things like encrypting EBS or making sure every S3 bucket is encrypted. But on top of that, we need the policy deployment, policy enforcement, remediation, notification when things go wrong. These are the components that go into building this up. So far, we've spoken about the landing zone portion. We've spoken about some of these guardrails. We're still working on things around policies. How do we start thinking through that? As I mentioned before, we made sure that this year there's an entire track around this. If you search for AWS Landing Zone on your app or hashtag AWS Landing Zone, depending on its mood, it might work as a hashtag. But otherwise, search for the words no, no spaces. These are all the things we're running this year. You're in that very first one up there. There's implementation ones. There's a chalk talk about the landing zone itself, so you get to learn about that. And there's a landing zone strategies chalk talk at the very end to help wrap all of that. You want to do demos and hands-on and start experiencing what this actually looks like? There's a number of workshops that we have available. Thank you. And thank you for staying around till 5 p.m.